Welcome to season four of And the Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy And The Writer Is, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's number one worldwide hit songwriter has written defining and redefining songs for artists like Rihanna, Pitbull, Fifth Harmony, and Kelly Clarkson. She's crossed genres from Miranda Lambert to Iggy Azalea and crossed generations from Madonna to Nick Jonas. But that's not all, folks. She's an award-winning independent artist who continues to write, record, and release music by her own rules. This Floridian is strong in her religious convictions and has integrity few people in our community have. There's always a kinship between writers signed not just to the same publishing company, but signed to the very same A&R. Shout out to Ryan Press. And the writer is my publishing sibling... Priscilla Renee. Hola. Thank you for having me. Um, hi. That was an amazing intro, by the way. I'm like, oh, oh, everything you say. It's kind of exciting, <laughs> right? But they're all yeah. true. It's all factual. Oh, me? Is that me? I know. Um, well, let's sort of figure out, because I've got a few things that are kind of fun to talk about as we go, but I just want to do like a little bit of the introduction. You know, how are we in the same room at the same time? And it starts with you and on YouTube in, yes. in the... 2004. Mid- 2004, you're on YouTube? Mm-hmm. So how does that get you to here? You know, when you say it like that, it does sound pretty far-fetched, but back then... I just didn't have any other way of, um, I mean, you know, that was during the time that you had to like be on a on a TV show like American Idol or you had to be in a bar and get discovered by an A&R. So when YouTube came along, it was like, aha, somewhere I can sing and somebody will see it. I don't know who it's going to be. Um, and, and honestly, I just started out doing it as an outlet. Were you were you writing before that? I mean, how Oh yeah, I've been writing songs since I was 8. Since you were 8? Oh yeah. What's your first song? <laughs> Funny. I was vacuuming the floor and uh we were living in Jacksonville, Florida. I was 8 years old and I just had this melody. It was like walking down the highway, looking at the skyway. And my brother was like, "What song is that?" 
I'm like, I made it up. He goes, no, you didn't. I'm like, yes, I did. So then he's like, mom. So we go in the living room and I sing it for her. And she goes, it sounds like she made it up to me. I never heard it. And so, I mean, we, that was a thing in our house, though, where um, my mom would put on music and we would like freestyle over the top of it. So we would always take the words, the same melody, same kind of cadence. All of you guys would do it? In the car, yeah. That, that, that was just normal. That was something we would do. Who like, started that? My mom. She would just be like, okay, here we go. Rat, think, you, stink. Tell me what you think is going on. And then we'd be like, I need, I need a drink. I want it to be pink. You know, like we would just do that in the car. Um, Did she want to do music or is she just naturally just loved music? Um, if I'm being honest, I think that's something that happens in black culture a lot in the black community, freestyle. Like somebody just starts it in the car. You know, your song comes on, you'd be like, uh, uh, check it. <laughs> you, you just do it. It's, it's not even, um, or like somebody else make a beat, start clapping, you know, lunch table, boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It just is a thing. And But we would do it a lot in our car. Uh, road trips, we, you know, my dad was in the Navy, so we would drive from wherever we were at the time, which at this point was, uh, you know, when we used to do it a lot. We were living in Maryland and D.C., and we would drive down to Florida, which was like 14 hours. So we had different games we would play, you know, punch buggy. Um, having your <laughs> punch buggy, yeah. having your your dad be in the military was he was he creative or was he or is he was he strict? I mean, what it? I, my dad <laughs> was kind of crazy, but my whole family was creative. My dad played the trumpet. He also sang, so he played taps like. He played that, and so that was his job. You know, not that that wasn't, he was like a a lieutenant, but you know, obviously they need someone to do it, and he was the one that would do it. Um, But he would also like do that in our room in the morning. (laughs) He would come and be like, (laughs) Reveille, Reveille, rising, we're like, Dad, we are not in the Navy, stop. But he could sing too. His voice sounded like um, the guy from The Temptations, always and forever. So he had this very high-pitched, soft voice. And my mom's voice was very like, you know, she sang like Patti LaBelle. So music was just in our house all the time. Did you guys go to church? Mm-hmm. Was there a lot of church music involved in, in that? Or was it more contemporary music when you're in when you're listening in the car? What kind of music were you? So we listen to church over? music on Sundays. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Getting ready to go to church, you know, he's got us blasting. Um I'm a, I listen to a lot more gospel and spiritual music than my parents ever did. My dad wasn't super spiritual, it was my mom. Mm-hmm. Um my dad was from the north, so Niagara Falls, like more city. And my mom was from the South. And so I always remember my mom's side of the family being way more dominant in my childhood, which consisted of like the farm, you know, family gatherings, music, cookouts, running around in your bare feet, you know, very, very um, real. I don't know. It, It just was like... When you go to grandma's house, you go to church. You know, it's like we we knew that that was going to happen. In our regular everyday life, not so much. We we just kind of like chilled on Sundays and 
When did you start writing songs? I mean, eight, you wrote that song and you still remember it. Would you repeat that song a lot? When were you thinking, oh, you know what? I should write verses and a pre-chorus. Were you? Did that I ever never, cross your I mind? I never finished that song. And that's it. It's just, it's just it, those two great. bars. Um, but I did, after that, my mom bought me a composition book. And I just used to write lyrics in there. And that's one thing about me. This is why if you ever write with me, you cannot lie and say that you wrote more than you actually did. Because <laughs> if I actually wrote the lyric, I remember the melody. And I remember oh, everything that I did. Yeah. If I can't remember, you're probably right. You probably did write that part, you know. But that's just something that um, I think maybe I've developed that skill over years because I, I never had music to write to until I was about 16. And I finally got a guitar. Um, but I just used to write lyric and melody all the time. And all I have to do is read the lyric and the melody comes back. Sure. So I've had that fight with a couple writers. I'm like, bro. Does it matter? <laughs> It doesn't matter for real, but if you try to make but if, it be but if a I thing. But I say, hey, I wrote that, and you're like, nice. Well, okay, for example, so we won't say names because I think we <laughs> all know these people and this person knows who, who they are. Um, we're, I walk into a room. The artist is not there yet. There's a bunch of people in the room. I'm one of those kinds of people that's like, I'm not going to hang around if I'm not supposed to be around. So there's like six people in the room. I'm also not, um, I'm kind of like a person who's like, just let it be, like, cool, whatever. I'm not super, I'm not a diva, like, I'm not going to be like, um, excuse me, we need to clear the room, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'll write in the corner, you know. Right. I can write my song in the corner yeah. and go in the booth and do whatever I need to do. And you guys, you know, can just be uh, around to see it happen. So, artist finally comes in and... We're here the whole time. She's whispering in my ear. It's impossible for you to have contributed the same amount as I have because she's whispering to me. And you understand? Sure. So at one point, this person does change a word, literally one word. Yeah. And it wasn't even the whole word. It was like two syllables. I'm not even being funny. It was like extremity remedy. Right. So we're like, oh, great. The artist liked it. We kept it. Comes time to do splits. The artist, this is an artist, and this is another thing that I, I don't think a lot of writers pay attention to, is that once you write a song and you get a placement, unless those songs are licensed, unless the album is fully licensed, it may not count towards your pub. So, so just to explain what that is, because I don't think people really understand that who are even professional writers. That even, if a, even if an album comes out, that if not all the writers agree to their splits from song one to 14 or whatever. Even then, on songs you had nothing to do yeah, with. Yeah, totally. No, nobody gets paid. Mm -hmm. They don't release any of the mechanical royalties. So there are some hit albums that have sold 2 million, 3 million copies. I think I'm allowed to say this. A Confessions is one of those albums, for example, where there's disputes. So as long as there are disputes... People aren't getting paid even on those kinds of albums that are diamond albums. Mm -hmm. And you wrote the song that you're the only writer. Of Clearly, you're the only writer. You should get 100%, 9.1 cents per song times 10. That's nine, you know, that's a lot whatever. of freaking money. Yeah, exactly. That's $910,000 just for your, you know, for your publishing on that. It's all sitting in the middle of, of, of a dispute, some disputed, you know, bank. Right. So this artist does wow. not play that. Yeah. 
she licenses her stuff as soon as it comes out. So in 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 an effort not to ruin my relationship, which by the way was very smart because me and this artist are very close now. Because I'm like, you're not gonna ruin my relationship with this amazing, incredible woman because you're you know, you're greedy. So long story short, we end up getting on the phone because I'm nice. I'm like, I, I really don't have to talk to her because it is what it is, but I'm gonna I'm gonna be nice. So we're all talking. Long story short, this person goes, um, I am not settling until I leave with the same amount of publishing as you get. And I'm like, you know, this doesn't really sound like a case of you want to do what's right. It sounds like an ego thing. And because I think the price of this relationship that you are bargaining, it's clear that you didn't do what you think you did. But I'm going to let you have it because this is the price that you're going to pay for this relationship. And uh, in the grand scheme of things, I think I made the right decision because that song didn't do what everybody thought it was going to do. A lot of times the artist that you're working with, if it's a huge artist, it kind of like blinds you and you can't see the bigger picture. And I think that's what happened there. But I always try to tell writers, man, like don't, don't scrape for scraps. Like don't do that. Don't like try to get all you can because that's the wrong energy to have. You know, like if it's a, if it's about being fair... And if it's about, you know, if we're going back and forth in the room and the whole time, even if nothing you said goes into the song, that's a co-write. We're bouncing ideas off each other. But if you sit there in the room the whole time and you might say one or two things and then you want an equal split, now I feel like you're gaming everyone in the room. You know, Um, it it can also be a detriment to the song when you have a co-writer who is not responsive or who is just like, no, I don't like it. No. I have that rule. Like, you're not allowed to say no if you don't have a better suggestion. You know, you can just be like... Yeah, be constructive. You can say no as long as you say no, but what about? Or how, even if it's how a can bad it be better? idea. Right. Um, oh, maybe I think we can beat it. That's, that's Mozilla's favorite thing to say. Yeah. No, I think we can yeah. beat it. I think yeah. we can beat it. Because um, yeah. you always want to be encouraging and forward-moving you know, you never want anyone to feel like their ideas are stupid. Right. Sometimes the stupid ideas are the hit ideas. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. For example, Timber. I was just being stupid. I was like literally like, remember, just being an idiot. And uh, Brian was like, you're laughing, but that's actually pretty dope. I'm like, really? Seriously? All right, fuck it. Let's do it. I'm going to say two things about that song, which I know we'll get to, but these are important. One is when you say the makeup songs in your your house, and you're like, you know how you were vacuuming. And yeah, yeah, were, yeah. Right. So like, I don't know why this is, and you know my pug, Peter. Peter. So for whatever reason, around our house, that song was really big. Right when we got Pete, and we we would be like, I got a pug. His name is Peter. He likes to move. He likes to dance. I got a pug. That's why Peter likes me so much. Yeah, and we move his arms, you know, so he's (laughs) dancing. And it's like, for some reason, like, I think of Timber, and that song is played in our house, in our heads. It was still now multiple times a week. Uh, You know, it's just how it works. So that's one. I love it. 
I so that's once it. you get a giant shout out for that. Because I think when it, whenever you write a song that's in the zeitgeist enough where people mm-hmm. can change the lyrics to fit their mm-hmm. home, that's like that you did something. Like so, I call that a time capsule record. It's like I I remember being in my living room one one time watching So You Think You Can Dance randomly. I know ne- I never watched that show, but I get a lot of licenses and, and sync requests. Basically, at people asking for permission to dance to my songs on that show and um, World of Dance and things like that. Which, by the way, Riders, is another way to have a hit song. It's not just on the billboards. If you have a song that is getting heavily synced and licensed, you can recoup your deal. You can like make like millions of dollars just off of TV and film placements. Like Worth It was not a huge chart topper. Um, but syncs and licenses, it was in like four movies, like video games, ju- uh, So You Think You Can, I mean, not So You Think You Can Dance, Just Dance, uh, Dance Dance Revolution. At one point, I was getting like three or four requests a week just off of that song. Um, so I think I was watching So You Think You Can Dance, and just randomly, I had like stopped on the channel and I'm cooking dinner, and the guy on the team was like, if we don't get this pyramid right, they're doing like a pyramid. If we don't get this pyramid right, it's going down. I'm yelling timber. I was like, oh, rewind it. And I like, you know, recorded. I'm like, this is how you freaking know that you are doing some amazing things when you are just randomly living your life and people are quoting something that you wrote. Like, this is something that that line literally so cool. came from my brain. Yeah. And now I'm hearing it back to me. Weird feedback. Yeah. That's the weirdest feedback that you can... It's so awesome, man, because it just really means like you're tuned in, your vibration is is right. You know, it's, it's awesome. Here's my other story about Timber. Is that um, I think it's the first time I wrote with Mozella was right in the room next door to where you and Brayon were. At Atlantic? Yeah. <laughs> and they... I had hemorrhaged my vocal cord the day before and I didn't know it yet, but my voice was just so sore and I was like, something's wrong. And I showed up to to this thing and I was just like, I don't I don't know what I want to, you know, Pitbull's there and who's a very nice guy. Very super he's a gentleman. Super gentleman. Like he's the kind of artist that that shakes hands of mm-hmm. all the the um you know, the assistants and second engineers and stuff and then waits till they they he can say thank you to all of them for mm-hmm. for working for him for that day. So uh, you know, super nice guy. And I just wanted to go, you know, who wouldn't want to go in a session? And at that time you're talking about one of the biggest artists in the world, if mm-hmm. not you know, he's Mr. Worldwide. Um, <laughs> so he, we get all these tracks, and this one track that um, they're like, this one's a hit, and there's a harmonica all over it. And there was the song Whistle was a hit. And this is the problem when you chase hits, is that we're sitting in the room trying to write uh, a song where we, I think we called it Harmonica. <laughs> and try to do like something that was like, you know, like, 
blow to my the timber blow, track? yeah blow my harmonica or something like that the way that like the whistle thing was an innuendo. Meanwhile, the guy who's who you know I'm friends with Brian too, and yeah. he's in the next room who wrote whistle is not writing the same <laughs> song. But I'm sitting there being like, I don't know, this is a great idea. Like whistle's big, so then harmonica's got to be big too. Mm-hmm. Let's just do that. And we're sitting there writing that, and I'm you know I'm just like just remembered writing in this track. That I think Miles Beard maybe found it, or was it? I don't remember who found the track. Was it Miles, or was, or was uh, Mike Karen? It was one. It was someone in that world. And um, when we got it, though, um, we I don't know. We tried our best. We wrote the wrong thing. You know, I always find like you're right. When I tried to, when I'm, when I feel like I'm under this intense pressure, and I've been a and would to pieces, you know, <laughs> the A&R comes in, he's like, this is what we need, we need another work from home, yeah. we need, you know, just simple beat with the melody, and I was like, okay, and I've, I've just, over the years, I've learned to translate that into, oh, you want a hit. Right. You don't want you don't Katy want Perry that, hot and right. cold, you want a hit. Right. You want what that song produced for you, which is a lot of money. Right. Um, but every time I've allowed myself to get sucked in, to the energy of other people, you know, like, because they're not creating, right? They don't understand what it is to totally. be that channel. I mean, I'm sure for you, anytime you've ever written one of your crazy, huge hits, you were not thinking about, let me please this A&R. You were thinking, well, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but... No, no, I mean, literally, it's it's all been the ones that I was pretty sure were not hits when we... Wrote them. I think one of them I really liked. The other ones were could have, you know. People ask me that all the time. Like, did you know that this song was going to be a hit when you were writing it? And I can't say yes to that. But what I can say is that every song that was a hit for me, I had a lot of freaking fun while I was doing it, <laughs> yeah. or I was comfortable. Yeah. And I was like not under pressure, and I didn't have somebody breathing down my neck. You know, like when you just give me the guitar or give me. Whatever you're gonna give me, leave me alone. Let me do what I'm doing. That's the ones that I've had success with. I think that was the Timber one was really strange. Only for me, only because I I had never. I guess there was m- maybe one of two times where I've written to a track where the song became massive. Usually, when they're like this track's a hit, that doesn't mean anything because the song's always the hit. Right. The track is just the track. If you want to do music, then it's perfect. Then it can be hit music, but it's not going to be a hit song. Right. It's so rare that somebody's able to make a hit song off of an existing track. A as hit as, track. as Savin says, it's like writing a screenplay to special effects. Yeah. And I love that. You know, it's really hard to write a hit song to tracks. But did any of your other songs come from that? No. I mean, like. It's really just that. Cause like, for like example, the, Worth It was like three different songs. That um, that I had written to different Stargate tracks, and then they just took the acapellas and chopped them up and made one song, and then so they took the verses from one, and the hook from another, and the the verse from Kidding from another song, and then they Genius. remade a different beat. So that one I didn't even know. Like it was yeah. like number ten on iTunes, and I got an email from Mikkel like congratulations. I'm like for what? He goes for our hit song. I'm like huh. He's like, it's number 10 on iTunes. So I go look and I see number 10 and I click it and I'm listening and I'm like, okay, 
this doesn't sound familiar. But then the, the verse comes in, I'm like, oh, okay, I did write that. I do recognize that. And I'm like, this is crazy. What, how did you, when, when, when did this happen? What, you know, I'm sure maybe not a lot of writers have experienced this, but it's been, I've had to change my energy around this because for some reason, the majority of my career, songs have come out and I had no idea. I think I just had so many songs out there written with so many people that I would look up and have a placement on Monica and like have no clue that it was even out. It's crazy. So going backwards, you know, this is 2004 and you're telling younger you that's about to do YouTube, like, yo, trust me, it's going to work out. You know, like what would you, how would you explain to that kid that like what their career is going to be like? And what what advice do you give to that kid who's about to go put their face all over YouTube? I would say go watch Behind the Music, every one that you can find, and go watch every documentary and every everything that you can find on these people who go into the music industry because it's real. You know, like you you watch those and you're like, oh, that'll never happen to me. No, I'm smarter. No, no, no. I'm nice. People, they wouldn't do that. It's real. It really happens. People really do get taken advantage of. People really do get robbed. You know, they really do like go crazy. I had a, I had a moment where I was feeling like, mm, like I was in the twilight zone. I mean, it's a, I would say. Well, tell me this, tell me the story. I mean, we, I, I made you jump forward with Timber, but there's so much story between getting the deal with Capital and, and releasing music and the deal with Warner Chapel and yeah, okay, manage- I, got, I got to put my bagel down. For yeah, this. exactly. <laughs> um, welcome to mornings with bagels. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so let's. I don't know. Let's go from the. Uh, All right, so let's go YouTube, um, two thousand four. Upload, start uploading videos. They're like crappy. Walmart webcam, you know, $24 webcam quality where it's all grainy and you can barely see, like it's all digital. Um, so I'm uploading videos and. I think like one blog that's really popular now started posting my stuff in 2006. You know, it was like two or three years before I started getting crazy, crazy traffic. But 2006, 2007, I started getting really popular. And when I would upload a video, at, you know, overnight, I'd get like 10, 20,000 views. So I started attracting the attention of industry professionals. And mind you, this is way before people were going online to find talent. I mean, this was literally like the first, you know, Justin Bieber was about to get a deal like two years later. Um, Esme Denters, Marie Digby, you know, these kinds of people. If you are on YouTube and you were watching back then, you know who I'm talking about. Um, I think on the movie Crazy Rich Asians, during the wedding scene, they had a performer. She came from YouTube. She was around on the, at the I can't remember her name, Right now, but she's an Asian American woman, and she's amazing. But she started on YouTube as well. So at this time, I think I might have had like three hundred videos up. Um, I would come home every day after school, after work, after college. You know, obviously, I've, I've evolved. I've started in high school. Now I'm in college, and I'm still doing this. And I would upload a video every day. And then my my stepfather bought me a guitar, so I started posting my own. Music, and then 
Um, eventually, I wrote my first full song on guitar, which was Hello, My Apple. And that was the song, one of the songs that got me my deal at Capitol Records. Uh, at the time, I think it was Chris Anacute or somebody showed my videos to him. And he took it to Rob Stevenson or whoever he took it to at the label. And they decided they wanted to sign me. <clears throat> there was a couple other people who they were looking at. This was around the Katy Perry hot and cold time where they had like Faras was was my label mate as well. Um, a couple other people who I can't remember right now. I can see their faces clearly, but I can't remember their names. And uh, anyway, signed to Capitol Records immediately. And, it, and what's crazy is now in hindsight, I didn't realize that I thought it was my choice signing to Capitol, but really it was like a political thing because... At the time, the people who were managing me also were heavily involved in Katie's project. So it was just like a, here, you know, take this alley-oop because we're going to have, we're going to, you know, do the same thing we did with Katie with her, except for this time we own everything. Um, so, you know, same producers, same mixer, same management, same everything. It was it was crazy. And me, being this 18, 19-year-old girl from Dirt Road Country, I'm like, yes, I'm signing Capitol Records. Were you still Records. living in Florida? Um, at the time, no. I had moved to Atlanta to live with the people who, who I signed to, the production company. So I was living in this big house with all these dudes. I was the only girl. Uh, one of the guys that was in the house with us was Honorable Sino, who now is like huge super producer in the hip-hop world he produced a couple of songs um and helped ep my album that i just put out um so we're still really close but i was living in this house with all these dudes 18 19 years old and signed to capital making this album that was like pop folk you know st- it kind of had some nuances of what i'm doing now but my theory back then was like, I could be an asshole and be like, no, this is the album I want to make. Because I really wanted to make like some Karim Bailey Ray, Fine Frenzy, you know, very like eclectic, Imogen Heap kind of stuff. That's, I'm, I'm weird like that. Like I'm the, I used to listen to Panic at the Disco and like I was the weird black girl that in high school, everyone was like, she thinks she white, you know, she's smart. She get A's in school. Like, no, seriously, I used to do people's homework. Like, I would charge $20. Like, that was me. I was the nerdy. I watched anime. Like, that was not cool where I'm from. Um, So going into this music, I really wanted to make some, like, earthy, artsy shit. And that just was not, you know, I just kept hearing, you'll get no money. They'll put no money behind you if it's not pop. It has to be pop. And so I did this thing. And how much of a mind... was fart was it (laughs) that i'm walking into these places in like iowa where the song was a a pretty much like a hit i just went back to iowa 10 years later and there's the line of people like oh my god dollhouse like i'm singing and they're singing the words i'm like this is crazy this song was really a hit up here it's like you know so i'm going to places like that iowa you know kansas and i'm walking in and they're expecting to see a white girl so I had places where I walk in and I remember this one grandmother was sitting there with her granddaughter and I walk in and immediately she's like, we're leaving. And the daughter's like, no, 
you know, she starts crying. Um, that's one place. And then another place, I walk in to the meet and greet and I walk in the conference room with my guitar and everything and the, the father's face just immediately turned red and he's like, get your stuff. And like, just took his daughter, they left. You know, that happened. And people, wow. you know, they don't want to admit it. Like even now with the country music that I'm doing and we know that Nashville, there's Darius Rucker, there's Mickey Guyton, there's Chuck Berry and Darius Rucker are the only two black people hanging up at the Grand Ole Opry um, backstage. So we know that that's not a space that is uh, predominantly brown. It's, it's just not. Um, so I've had to have this conversation where it's like, look, there's just some spaces where when there's not a lot of people who look like me, it makes people uncomfortable when I show up. So I had to deal with that at 19. I'm walking in. I'm just trying to live my dream. I'm having a great time. I walk into these pop offices in the radio station, and the PD is expecting to see. It's funny because Kesha's TikTok and my song were out at the same time. They thought she was black. They thought I was white. Whoa. So when... When I would walk in, they're expecting to see Kesha. And when she walks in, they expect to see me. Like, mm. literally, this is what I was hearing at the radio stations. I would leave, go in the car, turn the radio on to see if they played my song. What did you think about Priscilla? I thought she was white, you know? How did that affect you to see... I mean, I don't know. Had you experienced racism before that? Oh, yeah, in Florida. But it's a little different. It's more like, are you lost, honey? You know, it's more like, you know, everybody gets quiet when you walk in the room and you walk right back out. Or like you just don't go over there. Or you see like a certain truck with the flag, the Confederate flag. Or you see like the Guy Harvey shirts and the, you know, the tight jeans and the mud and boots. And you just like, okay, I know not to go over there. You know, it's just kind of a unspoken thing. Whereas they were actually saying it and I was actually seeing it. You know, um, did the did you feel like the label or your management once they realized that there was kind of some sort of is something of a racist backlash? They didn't. Did, they didn't or realize they, they it. They never realized it. No, because I think it's hard when you're not experiencing something or when you believe that it doesn't exist to even acknowledge. You have to acknowledge it first. You know, they just believe that the record didn't work. Right. They didn't realize that, no, it's when I show up, they don't want to play it anymore. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. You know, it's not, um, there's nothing wrong with the song. If if Katie put that out, it would be another hit. But they just didn't, they didn't want to believe that. They didn't. So what happened after you released the song? So we went with a more... So, soulful song next w w would have been lovesick and we had B.O.B. on it as the feature um, and they just didn't put it out they paid for it and everything and they just like they just took their hands off they're like you know what this re the record isn't working um, we tested it it's not working yeah but you're testing it in the same markets you know it, it's it's an old system and I think it was like the wheel was like beginning to fall apart at that time, and I was in the transition of like things falling apart, because um, right after that was that, a really weird time, because that's that's like piracy at its kind of at its peak pre like just when MP3s are are big if you're at the top, but there's there's really no room to there's not a lot of investment. Yeah, 
going out in the music business. I mean, I had I had they shot a a quarter million dollar video for me. Like I think I was like right at the end of the big budgets and the big, you know, I had like I had a crazy video effect special effects in my video and like tiny people and you know, I was like a giant. Um it was a cool video. But yeah, it was like right at the tail end of the lights camera action. And then that's when EMI was getting sold. So I was in limbo for like two years uh, trying to get off the label. And then I went through like four different regime changes where Dan McCarroll came in and, you know, Rob left and no Nick Gatfield left. Rob took over, then Dan McCarroll, then Ron Fair. And Ron Fair is an old friend. So he is the one who he gave me my first placement and I met him when I was 17. I had my first music industry experience with him. So he helped me get off Capitol Records. And uh, he basically was like, well, don't let her drown here. Just let her go. Like, you're not going to do anything with it. You don't know what to do. Just leave her alone. And we had I made three albums that never came out. And this final one was like more of like a soulful R&B one, and, which I loved, by the way. And, uh, were you doing that because that's what you wanted to release at the time, or were yeah. you doing? Yeah, I mean, I I wanted to like this was um, before you know R and B hip hop became the number one genre. It was just, it just felt like the right thing to do at the time, which I'm glad I didn't because I think it's you know I hate to say this, but I think once you go into the R and B realm, it's very difficult to depart from. It's very difficult to go do pop. It's difficult to go and make a country record. You can come from almost any other genre and do R and B. But once you do that, it's very difficult to go anywhere else. Um so I'm glad I didn't do that. Even though the songs were amazing, like Fantasia ended up with a song When I Met You that was gonna be my first single. Um ended up giving that away to her. How did it feel to have her sing it? Well, it didn't feel any kind of way because, I mean, I was happy. Um, Ron asked me for it because normally I wouldn't have if it was a song for me. I don't shop those records unless I really love the artist and I like really feel like they're going to do okay with it. Because there's just some songs that are not for sale. Right. It's like, this is my story. I'm not giving this to you because I didn't write it for that purpose, you know? Sure. I'd rather have it sit than have somebody sing my story, you know, and it's not right. Right. I mean, I've had I've only had like two songs come out that um I didn't want the artist to sing it. I would so bad want to ask you. <laughs> I don't want to insult the no, artist. No, no, that's I fine. love this artist and it wasn't her fault. Sure. It was the producer that was When did you start writing for other people? Was when the label then? fell apart, when when things yeah. at the label started falling apart, I went on tour. Were with you signed Akon. to Warner Chapel already at that point? <clears throat> I've been signed to Warner my whole music whole existence. Yeah. yeah. So from two thousand eight, he actually, and I don't know if he will admit this or if how true this actually is, but he got hired after our first meeting. So we, he was not at Warner Chapel when I first started. He came on to Warner to be. Who's my Scott, person. Scott Francis was the yeah. head of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he right. he came on to Warner to be my person. Blue Hamilton was my uh, oh Blue right. Yeah, Blue but like he, he didn't he stuff. didn't right. pay attention to me at all. Well, What's he went to pursue is, music. Yeah, he went to pursue being but a he songwriter. He didn't give a shit about me. Yeah, at all. Like it was so funny because we had the same last name. 
my maiden name is Hamilton. Oh, wow. So we had this thing. I was like, yeah, you're my cousin, whatever. <laughs> but then, like, nothing. Yeah. Like, our, we had this big meeting. It was like Greg Souders and, like, um, Blue. Brad, and Brad Aarons was there at the yeah. time. And, yep. Yeah. This um, is before um, Big John and Katie. Oh, Jason Boyarski. So, yeah, Jason um, and Scott, they signed me. They, it, and the energy was crazy. Like, everybody was so happy. We're like, yes, this is awesome. And then nothing. Like, not Jason or, or Scott. Like, they were awesome. And so Ryan came in to be my person. And then immediately we just, like, started grinding. Like, I, I remember we met, I met him in New York after a Regina Spector concert. And I forced him to eat a piece of my carrot cake. Like, he didn't want to eat it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, it's really good, Brian. Here, take it. He's like, no, I'm good. I'm like, eat the freaking cake. <laughs> so like, it, was, it, was, it was awkward, I admit now. I was, I, was a, I was an awkward child. Anyway, after that, like, we just kind of hit the ground running. We would talk every day. Like, he would be the first person I talked to and the last person I talked to at night. Like, yo, what's up? What we doing today? Da, 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 da. Okay, well, what'd you do today? Who'd you work with? Da, 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 whatever. Um... And we just would like, he would just work, he would work the shit out of me. Like I would be doing at least five sessions a day at one point, two songs in each session. Just, I remember one day I had the whole street at Glenwood. So I had both rooms at Encore and all the room, I think like four or five rooms at Glenwood. And you would just go be like, right, next one. Right, I was working with Melanie one, right. Fiona and Salam in one room, Jean-Baptiste on like some Beyonce stuff that never placed uh, in another room, Jesse McCartney in another room. Um, and then I had like Akon in another room and just like a random session in the other room, just like literally running from, from room to room like, cool, you got the, okay, you're going to cut that? All right, I'll be right back. Were you so cool not being the artist at that point? Or was At that it, time, it was fun. That's what I'm saying. The energy yeah. was fun. Yeah, I like music and I like creating. And sometimes there are things that I need to express my stories as an artist. And sometimes there are things that just need to be heard by the world and they need a vessel that is not me. Because some things I'm just not going to say. And I'm not a dancer like that either. So like, if I write a, a fucking dance song, I'm not going to be... Like, this is for me. Like, I've never... I know there was a rumor going around about that. Like, she's trying to keep every song for herself. But that's like me coming in your house and trying to take one of your guitars and be like, why are you trying to keep all these guitars for yourself? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's yours. It belongs to right. you. It doesn't belong to anyone else until you say, here, you know, have this. Don't so, take my guitars. I mean, they're pretty awesome. You yeah, thank you. Pretty um, awesome axes over there. Um, but no, I've never, I've never been jealous yeah to not have because that's 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 odd right that's an odd perspective to have that i would be jealous of something i create hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part they're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. What's the first song that you really realize the difference between you have a record deal and record deals seem like the goal until you have a record deal? And then you finish the record deal and you realize that was never the goal. This is what 90% of the people who get signed go through on some level. You know, just that the record deal is not the point. Right. It's what you aim for when you're younger because that's what what everybody tells you. Yeah, it's sort of what you know, but it's not the thing to aim for. I think once you see a song really travel around. Faster than you can. That's when you realize the weight of what music really is. Mm-hmm. And um, I assume that's the Rihanna song. Is that the first one that really kind of like? No, becomes- actually, what's funny is I I just had this realization maybe like last year, and it was with Timber. And I went to Bali for a writing camp, and it was incredible. Peter Cotillard and you know Oak, yeah, hosted it. Incredible. It was an amazing time. Like, awesome. And me being the big dork that I am and like Mother Teresa and I share the same birthday. So, which is in like seven days. And oh, so, happy early <clears throat> thank you. Or late birthday um, by the time this comes out. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. I'll be, I'll be aged by the time you guys hear this. Um, but yeah, so I was like, I really want to use my day off, my last day in Bali to go to the orphanage. And so we went, and so the kids were in school. It, it was a basically all the kids were not there. Some of the kids that were able to go to school were at school, but the disabled children were still there. And so that's who we were visiting with. And when I, you know, we we took I took my guitar, and um, you know, I wanted to like film me interacting with the kids and like singing with them and doing some music things. It didn't really turn out how we thought it would, but we still filmed it anyway. I thought they were going to be like, I thought I was going to be able to like teach some of the kids how to play or whatever um, and capture that kind of thing. But long story short, I end up singing Timber and immediately they start clapping and they are singing the words. And I'm like, wait, y'all can't even speak English. This is crazy. And you're supposed to be mentally disabled, supposed to be, but you're not. You're, you are singing these words. Let anybody tell it. These kids are unintelligible, but they're singing these words and they're clapping and they're happy. And I'm like, this is crazy because music is able to reach not only through a perceived mental barrier or a handicap or a disability, but a language, you know, and and the other thing is, this was in a remote village. Like, we had to literally walk through back alleys and drive through the bushes to get to this place. But they're singing the words. And these kids aren't that old either. They're like five. (laughs) So I'm like, yo, this is crazy. 
for like, a kid from Florida to be communicating with people in Bali, Indonesia, which is like an 18-hour journey from Los Angeles. And it just blew my mind. I was like, wow. Why did you start working in country music? It's just so easy for me to write a country song. Why? It just is. It's, it's a story. It's like, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. Every song I've ever written is a country song. Timbers Country, California King Bed is country. It got Rihanna on the, I want to say AMAs or something like that with, Jen, with Sugarland. She sang it. Literally every song I've ever written is in the country format style, just the song. When you strip away all the instrumentation and all that other stuff, you can just play it with a guitar or a piano and it's a story. Do you feel like Nashville, because you were alluding to it on some level before, I mean, obviously there's, it, it's not particularly racially diverse, um, uh, certainly on the charts, and it seems like it's, maybe in the last couple of years it's starting to have more women in, uh, on the charts, but it was obviously a, a really male-dominated industry in the last five years. Do you feel like the, you know, working with Miranda Lambert or pursuing what you've been pursuing as an artist that that they're accepting and that they're excited to have you there? I think good music transcends all judgment. And I think we're living in a time where um, I don't have to ask permission from any of the gatekeepers in Nashville. I mean, if I want to get my stuff on radio, maybe, and there's different ways that people can try to hold, you know, hold back the, the flood, so to speak. But um, there's so many people out there, man, that love country music. I just did the Bill Pickett Rodeo this summer, which is a black rodeo. And literally, I mean, there's dudes out there with full body tattoos, baggy jeans, cowboy boots, buckle, and, and a hat. Like, this dude looks like he is straight out of Compton, but he's a cowboy. There's a whole market of people who are like, oh my God, why haven't we had a black Carrie Underwood? Like people were buying my CDs left and right, just coming out of the thing. Like, oh my gosh, is this you? Were you the one out there singing? Yeah, let me get two of those. So <clears throat> I think there's a whole untapped market, but I think the difference between my music and a lot of maybe artists of color in the country space before me is that I'm actually bringing my culture with me when I write. It's not um, like I can't lay on the bed of a truck and look at the stars because without somebody coming up to me and asking me, what am I doing? Wow. So I'm not going to write about that. But I am going to write about, you know, the backyard or the the cookout, you know, that you don't hear those kinds of stories on country radio. You hear walking through the park or th those are not things that I do. So I don't drink beer, drink Hennessy, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, or like... But it's not that that's confined to you. It's the... Um, Massive, a massive demographic in the south. Well, I'm just wondering, like, yeah. where do you think all those brown people went after <laughs> emancipation? Do you think they just yeah. went poof? No, they still live there. You know, they yeah. still live in the same area as you while you're listening to your country music and flying, walking around with your Confederate flag flying. There's still brown people in that space. Just visually, when you think about Nashville, you don't think black people. I have to admit, when I went, I was surprised. I was like, oh, there's black people here. 
Somebody said this when I, I first went to Nashville. <coughs> it was one of the first times that I had spent serious time in the South because I toured through the South in a band, but you're one day new city, one day new city, you know, maybe two days in one city, mm-hmm. but it's pretty quick, you know. And going to Nashville, I was, I was assuming that coming from the North, that the South would be still very segregated. And one somebody said this to me that the, the South has been forced one way or the other to try to in a lot of places, certainly in Nashville, where there's been some effort to integrate in the really municipal parts, like the really urban areas, versus where I grew up in Chicago, where there is a clear line. Where north of this line is white and south of this line is black. And it's almost more segregated in parts of the north where they never, they, it's like, a, it's, it's, I don't know you why. You just don't but, go on that part, side what? of town. You just don't go on that yeah, side. Yeah, and of town. I don't know, I don't know why the, even LA, like there, LA, the parts of LA, you don't see the I fact think that's, that, I think that that's 46%. A systemic, though. Because, like, honestly, when you you know when you think about real estate, and you think about um, job opportunities, and you think about things like that, like, I don't know, music has allowed me a certain privilege, where when I go home, I could stay closer to my parents, but the hotels in that area are not nice. They're cheap. They're just not nice. I can go to the beach where. I'm paying 300 bucks a night, you know, to stay at Gloria Estefan's hotel, but that's 15 minutes away from my parents. And it's across a bridge, across the railroad track, you know, it's just different. Whereas like um, here, if I want to go and be around people who look like me, I have to drive an hour from where I live, which is Calabasas, you know, it's a quiet neighborhood we don't have any, like, after 9 o'clock, it's literally quiet. You can hear the dogs barking and the birds chirping. Um, there's no trash on the street. Like, it's an, an amazing neighborhood. But if I want to go, <clears throat> and there's no one who looks like me. Even my neighbor makes a joke about, like, the property value going down because we live there. Despite the fact that my house is the nicest one in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know, like, so things like that where it's it's just, like, Black people just don't live in the nice areas. They live in the cheap areas. That That's just the, the thought process. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's true. You know, there's not very many people who look like me in the places that I've lived. Even out here, I had a penthouse in Sherman Oaks. I was the youngest and I was the only black person in the building. I lived in Glendale in a very, very nice apartment complex before it started like it was a condo before it started getting gross in that area the youngest and one of two black people black families in the building it just is it's you know it's not just a statistic it's a reality where systemically the places that people who look like me can afford are in areas that are not so nice like even my pastor lived in Compton in in Inglewood area for a very long time because that's what they could afford with three kids. You know? There was um, uh, 
an actor friend of mine who has become really successful in the last few years who he's from Oakland and he was talking about survivor's guilt. He's a musician, mm-hmm. he's a rapper, he's a you know, an actor, really successful and talks about feeling that bad fe- like you left feeling people bad behind. That, yeah, I mean he's it's it's he writes about he just had a movie come out where that's really honest about growing up in Oakland and it's not pretty, you know? I mean, he's bringing his past with him, but it it's interesting the idea of I think a lot of artists, regardless of their race, have some sort of survivor's guilt when when they become somewhat successful because mm-hmm. everyone becomes successful on their own time and yeah. everyone has a different definition of success and all the other things. But financially speaking, you know, it's it's so sink or swim in this business. Do you feel any survivor's guilt? Um, I'm glad you asked that because I've kind of been having like a recap of my life recently and I think it's because I'm I'm reaching like a milestone birthday. I'm going to be 30 this year. And uh congratulations. Thank you. I look at it as freaking awesome. Like I'm like Oh yes, yeah. Just I'm wait an till adult. the, the day you say, turn 30, all of a sudden people are like, "Wow, I trust you." Yes. It's so weird cuz they're like, "You made it." Yeah. If you can make it to 30 in the music business, it means you didn't give up. It means that something went your way. I mean, I started when I was 18, yeah. so to still be like, I mean, I've had a hit every year since I started. Um, even the year, one year I only had one song, it was a hit. It, it was a, the Carrie Underwood Miranda song. Um, so it's like, I've, I've actually, and I, I just recently went back and looked like, you know, P, like you should really not be complaining yeah. about anything because you have had, even with all like the tumult in your life or the perceived hardships that you've had, um, you really have been doing well. And so I said all that to say, like, coming from where I come from and my humble, humble beginnings, I mean, like, literally growing my own food and, and going outside to pick oranges off the tree if I wanted something to drink, like, that kind of thing. Um, there have been times where I felt bad, where I felt like I've got to go back and help, which is why I have always been very involved with ASCAP and, like, advocacy and doing the the um expo as often as I can and teaching and trying to like drill it into people's heads. But what I have come to realize is that whenever I was having a bunch or a multitude of success, it was when I was happy, carefree, when I when I was vibrating at like the the highest level of just like I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy for existence. I'm happy that I don't have to sit behind the desk every day. I'm happy that I didn't waste four years in college. You know, not saying that if you don't, you know, if you go if you go to college, that's great. But my parents tried to force me to go and I almost let them. And so I'm glad I did not do that. I'm glad I followed my heart. And I've I've come to realize that everything bad that has ever happened to me, it's because I was, it was like, that's a raven, self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh my God, I just really don't want him to cheat on me. Oh my God, I just really just hope they're not stealing from me. You know, like think every time something happened, it's because I brought it into my situation with my thoughts. And nobody wants to really admit that. Like, well, I got in a car accident. Dude, you drew that. I'm sorry. Like all the car accidents that I've been in, and thank God I haven't been in any in recent years. But when I think about the events leading up to it, dude, 
I brought that into my situation. So I've had some pretty awful things happen to me in my life. People take advantage of you mentally, physically, you know, emotionally, all of those things I brought on myself. And the same way I brought those negative things, you asked earlier, how do you go from dirt road town in Florida to Hollywood and writing and being friends with, you know, people who you used to watch on TV? Um, I drew that into my experience as well. I didn't have any contacts in the music business. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know that 10 years from, you know, when I started on on YouTube that I would have number ones and be traveling around the world to places like Indonesia and London and France writing songs for other people and performing in front of 30,000, 80,000, however many people that performed in front of um, in arenas and stadiums. I had no idea. But... I continued to put that energy out there and I continued. And this is for anyone. When you're talking about survivor's guilt, that what you are doing is taking on other people's issues. You're taking on the fact that that person doesn't have as much as you have and you feel bad for them. But what you really should be doing is encouraging that person and putting light and and hope into that person and telling them, hey, you could be anything you want to be, man. Like, it's really difficult when you are in a community that is constantly, every time I go home, I have to tell my parents like, mom, dad, I'm sorry. I have to stay in a hotel. I can't be around all this. I need, I, I have, I try not to say negative energy. I, I try to phrase it like I need to be in a positive environment because culturally in where I'm from and in like those small towns, not even just like it's a black or white thing, but in small towns, People, oh, so-and-so died today. Oh, you know, my back hurts. Oh, you know, such-and-such daughter got pregnant. It's like it's just like bad news. Bad news bears. And when you're passing that around, it's just a big tornado of negativity, and you just, it's a cycle. And nobody's saying, oh, my God, you know, my check was $20 extra this week. Or I got a full tank of gas. Like, nobody's talking like that down there. So it's really difficult. You know, if everybody looked at me like I was crazy. My boss, when I worked at a barbecue restaurant, he used to be a tour manager. I told him I was going to make it big in the music industry. He's like, good luck with that. <laughs> I'm petty. So I went back and I had a, I was on Queen Latifah and it was airing that day. And I went back and I turned the TV at the bar to it. And I didn't say anything. I just was drinking my sweet tea. And I'm like, hey, Brian, come here. He goes, I go, he's like, what? What's up? And I pointed at the TV and I was like, look, who's that? And he's like, holy shit, that's you. Oh man, that's awesome. And like he completely forgot about all the negative things that he had said to me before. But I don't think people can help it when you're when you're in that blender every day, you're hearing negativity, and it becomes a part of the fabric of who you are and how you talk and how you even perceive the world. So now I don't feel guilty. I feel an obligation to share and to help people wake up and to help them become aware. You know, you hear people like they win their Grammys and they get on stage and they're like, believe in yourself. You can do anything. And it sounds so cliche. No, but it's true. Once you, if you've had a little bit of success selling air for a living, you can relate to (laughs) the the final scene of Hoop Dreams. You know, Hoop Dreams? Mm -mm. It's like a documentary in the 90s of these two high school basketball players in Chicago that, you know, want to go pro. 
and amazing documentary about living on the South Side and being world a world class athlete from junior high forward. But one of them, the like the end of the movie, he says something along the lines of, you know, people always ask me um, if I'll remember them when I get to the next level, and I always want to ask them, will you remember me if I don't? Mm. And you know, so many people in this industry are here to are driving for a recognition from people who won't remember you. That is so true. And you know, and you know, my priority, my first priority is always going to be my wife. You know, and it's just that's just what it is. If she needs me, she comes first. I, it's like, interesting of, you say that because no I think, one's going to remember whatever song I write next. Yeah, but my wife's going to remember. Half the time they don't even know what you wrote; they just know that oh, you yeah, have hits. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think yeah. I think you mentioned your wife. I think me getting married was another huge pivot for me because I was one of those people who was looking for recognition from. I mean, I thought I thought I had friends. I thought. Oh my gosh, this person loves me. No, they don't. They just want the photo op. You know, huh. they just want the the yeah. opportunity for somebody yeah. to be like, "Oh, you know P?" You know, cuz I was a very as as outro uh, not that's not a word. As extroverted as I am, um I still am, but I've learned to like temper it. I mean, I used to wake up and have random people on my couch. Like that's how <laughs> way too extroverted. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. how nice. I mean, yeah. literally, people right. knew that my door. They knew which door was unlocked. Yeah. to come into my house and sleep. Um, and like that's not even an exaggeration. Like, <laughs> I woke up one morning and B. Howard was on my couch. I don't know if you know who that is, but that's like the guy that looks like Michael and um, talks like him and says that he's his son, like his unacknowledged son. Just Google it. B. Howard, um, that he was on my couch one day. I'm like, what? I'm <laughs> so weird. This is, he's like, hi, Priscilla. But um, yeah, like getting married, I got married at 26. I was like, wow, I only need to care about this person. This is awesome. I don't have to care whether or not you're my friend or whether or not you're upset because I didn't let you, you know, come to my house or drive my car. You know, I was so nice, Ross, like unbelievably nice. I would give people shoes, cars, clothes, like, here, take my car. Oh, it's fine. I'll get a I'll get a you ride. You think they were taking advantage of you? Absolutely. Yeah. That, that was the rumor about me. Priscilla's so nice, she'll give you anything. Like when I heard that, it actually hurt. I was like, ooh. Ooh. You know, like normally, like, you know, if I had heard like, oh, she's a, she's a slut. I probably would have been like, oh, whatever, because it's not true. But it was so true that I was just like this gullible cesspool of just like, here, take publishing, there's take no- my songs, a, take my house. There's another expression that's, uh, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. It, that was me for yeah. a long time. I mean, but but I was so happy that I was not in college or behind the desk. Because I had had those jobs before. Yeah, I worked at a CVS distribution center in a mm. warehouse, clocking in at seven, clocking out at five. You know, I did that at eighteen. I was like the boss of people, and I hated it. I was like, "This is terrible. I don't want to eat cup noodles every day." <laughs> um, we're gonna go to the next segment, which is yep. going to first of all, 
we didn't even talk about half the songs that you've done. So you know, you know, it just just to give a, a quick shout out to uh, a couple of them. You know, this last year, obviously, "Love So Soft" for Kelly Clarkson's a, a really big record. But going backwards, you know, just having the Carrie Underwood and Miranda Lambert record, you've you've had so many big songs and to be honest I think worth it being the the song that kept Fifth Harmony alive there's no work from home if there's no worth it if worth it didn't happen that band is is in my opinion they're done but they'd been looking for hits releasing songs that were not hits over and over again you know I know Joe had a record with them they've had records that were legit records that just didn't really react and worth it Really reacted, so you know you you helped define them, and uh, I imagine that they're they should be very thankful for where that comes from. Um, but we're gonna do the segment five for five, where I'm gonna list five things, and you tell me the first things that come off your top oh, of your head. Geez, we're gonna right. go with first a good friend of ours, Brian Isaac. Brian is crazy. Okay, I have never met somebody with a more twisted mind. I mean the. You know Bran? He makes me so happy it hurts. Like he, like he is he's, he is he's a rare person. Yeah. He's, I hope he's listening to this. I hope so too. He's like so unexpected. Yeah. He's like, you know, if you get a mar if you like have a, a toasted marshmallow and then you break it open and there's like meth inside. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. That's um, Bran. Okay, let's do let's do somebody's got a crazy style. Ron Fair. Oh my gosh, pimp, OG. Ron Fair is an A and R guy who signed people like Christina Aguilera back in the day, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean like, literally, you know, his plaques massive. would cover this yeah, entire yeah. room, floor to ceiling, yeah. no space. Yeah. And going back, you know, Brand is five to ten number one songs, and also just cool dude. Um, yeah, I'm gonna do a city, Nashville. Shrimp and grits, biscuits. And amazing, amazing, talented, and this is not an insult, bar musicians. You, oh, the best bar musicians in the world. Their bar yeah. musicians and yeah. songwriters yeah. are better than yeah. some of the best people in L.A. I mean, you can go into any yeah. random bar and hear a ridiculously good song. With Performed p- impeccably <laughs> by a random person yeah. who doesn't even want to be in the industry. Yeah, they just do it because they love it. They love it. It's crazy. Stargate. Oh, Stargate Hit Factory. Yeah, and they did the same thing for Same Old Love, which we've talked about, and other ones that that worth it happened. Where it was, you know, they have this ability to hear hit songs and not be precious about any of the production, throw away everything, start over, move things around until they make it a hit, and then mm-hmm. they make it a hit, and you walk you the next time you hear it, it's not what you left with. Yeah, they definitely have a great. formula. Yeah, I mean, not very many people have that. Like, I think Max Martin has. They have that. their formula. They have their formula yeah, that yeah. works for them. Yeah, you know, don't it's, try to do what they yeah. do because only they can do that. Yeah, they're brilliant. I gotta go with Ryan Press. We have to do it. Oh gosh, pain in my butt. No, honestly, Ryan and I have had a very long. There's not very many people in this business that I can say that I've known for ten years. And still talk to them. Um, so he's one of those people. We've definitely had our ups and downs, but I think some people, man, you just kind of like tied to 
Like I think I think we're sewn together. I don't think even if we don't work together, I think our stories are just meshed. And yeah. I think uh, we had a time where we really did a lot of good things together. And I think both of us were able to build our careers off of each other. So. Yeah. Um. What's advice? I mean, you've given a lot of advice for up and coming writers, and I think you can kind of lump this into uh, advice you would have given younger you. You know, um, I followed this advice, so I would say read, read a lot, and always keep searching. Never think that you have all the information. Always keep reaching, you know, into the ether. Like, what more can I know? And if you have a question, if something doesn't feel right, and this was something that um, was confirmed for me by Stevie Wonder. Um, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. And if the answer doesn't satisfy you, it's probably because it's BS. So continue to ask and continue to seek answers until you get something that satisfies you. And if somebody is um, hesitant to answer your question, then, you know, there's probably something up. Never feel, never feel obligated to keep quiet. You know, ask the questions. You have a right to know what kind of deals you signed. You have a right to know what your commitments are. You have a right to know what people are expecting of you. Um, yeah, ask. 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 The worst thing is that you find out the truth and you say no, but think sometimes people want to avoid the truth so bad that they're willing to not ask the question, sign the deal, and walk away knowing that they got screwed somehow, but they don't want to know. They'll just find out someday. When, yeah. they, when they find out, they're never happy. It, it, you're better off knowing up front how you're getting screwed and deal with it ahead of time. And yeah. so that way, as you're getting screwed, you're like, screw it. I signed this and, and uh, uh, I got to deal with the consequences. But the, whatever positive came in your life came because of this deal and to say that these offset each other and are balanced. You, you know? know, one thing that I always um, hated, and I'm so glad that I've like shaken it off now is this thing that you have to be on your best behavior, right? Because you're in the music business. But this is the most unformal, unprofessional profession where like <laughs> you're in a pub company and they're having a party on Friday and they're drinking beer, you yeah. know, at the at the, inside the office. But yet you go in there and they expect you to like mind your P's and Q's and have your hands crossed like, no, screw that. Be yourself, be who you are when you're with your friends, Talk to these people how you would talk, you know, to your brother or to whoever. Like, I don't care if this is the CEO of the company. Be like, yo, man, check this out. Right. This is what I was thinking. You don't have to be like, so, you know, I put together this declaration. No, bro. That's that's too that's the wrong approach. And when you're when you're trying to be in this business, be who you are. You yeah. can't try to be professional because as I said, this is the most unprofessional profession. So the more well-behaved you are, the less of a star you are. That's the funny part. Yeah. It's like if you're not jumping on tables, and I'm not saying do this if this isn't you know, who you are, if that's not how you're feeling at the time. If you're not jumping on tables and banging shit and like tearing up hotel rooms and, and you know putting on a show all the time, normally people tend to overlook you, which is why people like Takashi and, and all, you know, all these artists are... Azalea Banks get so much attention because that's quote unquote star quality. So 
Yeah, it's either that or write your way out of it too. I mean, there's a way to probably write and be a, a rebel by the way you write, or there's a way, you know, it's the same thing with even a Bon Iver or Kanye. Yeah, but then you also too. have to be the artist. Well, yeah, because right. that's the thing. Like, I've written so many edgy records, and people want to cut them, but then they're like, "Oh, but can we edit this part?" I'm like, "That's the thing that's that the made part. you want to cut yeah, the song, right?" Because right. they get scared. Absolutely. Yeah, they get scared. Well, thank you for doing this. You're very smart, and you're wise and uh, you know a lot of times we do talk a lot about songs but I want people to hear real humans talk about humanity in the music business because what both of us have talked a lot about is is the future of what we're doing and that just because the system was set up this way doesn't mean it always has to stay this way and that we can change how the industry perceives songwriters and how songwriters can take control of their future and take control of the decisions they're making. And you've always been vocal and you've been an advocate for songwriters to do what's right for themselves. You're not shy. That's not like, I don't think, you know, you've, you've said a couple times that you think people perceive you a certain way. I perceive you as somebody who's not shy, who says what she wants. And, That's because I and, like you, and you, you've seen my real side. Most people don't. <laughs> well, I like your real side, and I applaud you and your career, and I know you're just starting. And, um, Thanks. Uh, I also just sent you a new mix of a song that we did in, <laughs> in Vegas because I, I just awesome. I forgot to send it to you before, so don't fault me, but it's really no, good. No, it's cool. I'm listening like, to it on really my Uber good. ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I did want to just leave everybody with this, man. Like, you know, I know you've been super... Um, involved in the MMA, the Music Modernization Act, um, in an epic way, you know, just like forcing people to pay attention. And I'm I'm like, applaud the crap out of you for your approach and um, how you've like made it cool to to fight for this. Because it wasn't cool, you know, a couple of years ago when we first started, people were like, what? You're going to Washington, D.C. for what? You know, are we writing songs there? Um, But, you know, I I believe it was Albert Einstein said that a a problem can't be solved from the same plane on which it's created. And I think that um, the way we're going about it now, yeah, you know, it's it's definitely been a fight and it's worked to a certain extent. But I really believe that songwriters, producers, anybody who's composing who would benefit from the the revision of of the music modern, um, you know, of the copyright law, um, I think we have to have the gonads to unplug from this yeah. system. You cannot say Warner Chapel, Universal, Spotify. You suck, but and then not on Tuesdays I'm listening. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm still getting my check from you. That's right. Um, you have to be willing to lose that. You have to be willing to be like, "This is what I'm fighting for, guys." And if you don't want to, if you want to drop me, all right, that's fine. That's cool. You know, you have next to take step that step. Is, next step is going to be, you know, we've got healthcare. We've got things that songwriters are going to have to fight for. We're one of the few ar- artists in the world that are not protected in any sort of union mm-hmm. and I, I don't know if we'll create a union or a guild but I know one thing is for sure is that I was looking this into next, it. this next fight is going to be is that uh, you know by the time this gets aired we'll know what the music modernization act has done but um, 
there will be more money in the music industry and there's no excuse anymore for them not to, them being these companies to not help provide healthcare, at least basic healthcare, to the creators that are keeping them in business. I think we should I think we should use the Trump administration as an example. A lot of people chose him and chose that side because they thought it was going to be profitable. Yeah. And I think after a year or two, they realized that maybe they made the wrong choice. And I think if you choose yeah. the side of profitability, money, money changes in value. The dollar, you know, the 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 value of a dollar changes um but creativity and like invention and ingenuity that comes every time there's a new birth of a new person and and a new desire for somebody who was not in music to come into music there's an opportunity you know if i write a song timber we wrote in like 20 minutes that song generated millions of dollars so if i can do that over and over and over in an hour there's more opportunity from a creative standpoint to be profitable than it is to bank on what's already there. Yeah. That's just, you know, pick the right side. Don't don't think about what's available now. Think about but, what's out there. We're going to this generation is already, you know, a little more communal and I, I get the feeling that the now that the people who are running these other record labels are of the same generation, I think that we're more likely to find solutions that take care of the community as a whole and and uh, let's go change the world. Let's do it. I thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.